So there I sat in a conference room with 12 other men. I was at the head of the table and every eye was on me. Many of the men in this room loved me, but some of them were very concerned for me. You see, I was standing in front of the elder board of my church. This was the church that was the healthiest church I'd ever been a part of. It was a church that had a bright future in front of it. They had just purchased land and were in the process of building a big, beautiful building. And they were expecting hundreds, if not thousands of people to come and be a part of this church. And most of those new people that they thought would join, they expected to be young adults. And I was the young adult pastor. And yet I was sitting in that room to hand over my resignation letter. You see, two years prior to that day, I had a very distinct moment where I sensed God saying, I want you to leave and go plant a church. And I struggled with it. I, I doubted my abilities. I, I, I doubted the future. I, I, I loved my church. I, I didn't want to leave Cedar Rapids. I loved everything that was going on. And so I prayed my face off. I wrestled with it. I read every book I possibly could on church planning. I listened to every podcast I could find on the subject. I, I went to conferences. I even went through a church planning assessment center where they absolutely looked at every aspect of my life, ripped me to shreds. And at the end of it, they said, we're going to pass you on the contingency that you go to Kansas City and you learn about church planting from this particular church. So that meant I eventually had to resign the position I loved from the church I loved. And that's why I sat in that conference room, handing over a resignation letter to these elders. And that's when the questions started. Some of the questions were out of curiosity. They wanted to know why would I leave this healthy church that had such a bright future when the area that I oversaw was about to grow dramatically. Why would I leave this for the risk and unknown of church planting? Some of the questions were for concern. Some out of love because I was about to step off staff and have no more salary. I was going to have to enter into fundraising to raise my own salary. And they were concerned for me and my family. Some of the concern was for the church. How would this look to the rest of the church family to have the young adult pastor leaving at such a critical time in the life of the church? But then some of the questions started to get a little personal. I remember one elder started a line of questioning that began to question my call. My call to church planting, my ability to lead, and my readiness for such a role. And I tried to reassure him about the church planting assessment center I went through and the things they showed me and told me. And then with a sweep of his hand, he says, you know, I know nothing about that group. They probably just pass everyone. And in that moment, I felt as if my chest had just been ripped open, my heart taken out, and it was being sliced and diced right in front of me. How could he dismiss the two-year journey I had been on? The, the praying, the learning, and trying to carefully shepherd my church family to not hurt them in any way by my leaving. In fact, I was leaving at that particular time to give them time to find a new young adult pastor who would be in place as they moved into the new building and all these new people would come to check out this growing church. That way they could meet the new young adult pastor instead of meeting the one who'd be on his way out to obey God. And yet, despite my journey, he sweeps it away with one statement and I felt deeply disrespected. Respect. I, I think all of us want it. 
whether you're a pastor or a parent, whether you're a college professor or a custodian, whether you're president of the United States or Aretha Franklin, we all want R-E-S-P-E-C-T. It just is in us. We long for it. But there's a belief about respect in our culture. The respect is something that has to be earned. And I think that's why his words hurt me so deeply. Because I thought I had earned his respect. I I thought that surely by seeing me work as the young adult pastor for the last eight and a half years and the way I went about doing my life and my ministry, I would have had enough respect that when I felt God calling him is, they'd trust me and believe me. I I thought the way I was handling myself in the resignation, the way I was trying to be careful for my church family, I thought that might earn me some respect. But no, he didn't respect me. You see, earned respect is how business gets done. Earned respect is how teammates bond. Earned respect is how neighborhoods gel. And apparently, earned respect is how some churches operate between their pastors and their elders. We believe the respect has to be earned. That is why today's message is going to deeply bother some of you. Okay, that's probably actually stating it very lightly. Today's message is going to be very unpopular. You're going to want to rebel. This is probably going to be about as popular as Hillary Clinton at an NRA convention. It's not going to fly in your heart. You are going to want to just say, no, there's no way. Because our culture has been teaching us that respect is something to be earned. And today, you're going to hear that actually respect is something to be given. And we are going to see Peter actually invite us to give respect to people who do not deserve it. They have not earned it. This is what's going to bother us so much. But if you will stick with this, if you really look at what Peter's saying, this has the potential to radically change your work relationships, your casual relationships, and even your closest relationships. And the way we're going to learn it is by looking at Jesus. So, Father, as we get ready to open up to 1 Peter, may you be our teacher today. May this not be about what I want to say. May this be about what you want to say to your people, to these people that you have gathered here today for this purpose of hearing this now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, if you uh, have a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open it up to 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2 as we're doing our uphill series. Today we are in uh, verse 13, and we are going to work to the end of the uh, chapter. And we're going to see Peter talk about giving respect to at least two different groups of people. All right, The first group here is verses 13 through 17, and that's to give respect to the governmental authorities. To governmental authorities. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in a presidential election cycle. Okay, I know, it's a a big shock. If you've been in a bunker for the last several months, cut off completely from the internet, let me catch you up. 
right now the Republican nominee for president is this guy by, I know, he's this unknown, Donald Trump, right? Very few people have ever heard of him. Uh, but then there's this uh, uh, gal for the Democratic Party. Her name is Hillary Clinton. Again, a, a no name. She comes out of nowhere. Uh, big surprise there. And these are the two primary candidates. Now, some of you would push back and say, Aaron, there's more. You're right. Gary Johnson's being put forth by the Libertarian Party. The Green Party has nominated Jill Stein. Uh, I just heard about some guy named Evan McMillan yesterday who's announced he's running for president. He, like, announced it in August, so he's not even running on a ticket. I mean, there's all sorts of people running for president. But tonight, at the debate, there will be two people, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Now, I realize, because I know my church family well enough, that there are some of you in this church family who cannot stand Donald Trump. You just, you, you cannot wrap your mind around the idea of why anyone would possibly vote for this guy. At the same time, I also know that there are some of you sitting here who are trying to figure out how anyone could vote for Hillary Clinton. Like in your mind, she was the worst possible candidate. How could anyone cast a vote for her? Well, did you know that this election cycle, I think this is the first time ever that both major candidates have majority unfavorable ratings? Like, both of them have over 50% negative or favorable ratings. Like, no one likes them. So that tells me that there are some of you sitting here today who don't like either of them. And you don't even know what you're going to do in one month. Like, maybe you're going to vote third party. Maybe you'll just leave that section blank and vote for the rest of the stuff. Maybe you're just going to skip voting altogether. And I would just encourage you, don't do that. All right? There's men and women who've died so that you could vote. So please go vote. But you don't know what you're going to do. Now, I want you to imagine. All right, pick, pick one of these candidates, whichever one you hate the most. I want you to envision one month from now, election night happens and ABC and NBC and CBS and Fox and CNN and all of them start showing the results. And it's projected that the candidate you hate has just won the election. What are you going to do? Are you going to start dressing in black and mourn the next four years? Uh, are you just going to get on social media and blast the ignorance of the American people? Are you going to actually begin filing the paperwork to move to Canada? Like, what are you going to do. Well, let me put this in perspective. Peter, when he wrote 1 Peter, if you were with us the week we started the series, you might remember that some, most scholars think he wrote this in 64 AD. If that's true, in 64 AD, the emperor of Rome was a guy by the name of Nero. You might remember what we talked about four weeks ago, or maybe if you know your history, Nero hated Christians. In 64 AD, there was a big fire that broke out in Rome. There were three big fires that, that uh, hit Rome, but 64 was the worst of all of them. Some people actually thought that Nero said it because he was apparently up on his rooftop watching it, playing his lyre and singing songs. So he got accused of it. Well, he didn't want to take the blame, so he apparently blamed Christians. And Christians became some of the most hated people in all of Rome. So much so that they would round them up, take them to the Colosseum, and then let loose the lions. And just watch the lions have fun with the Christians, just for sport. He also would take Christians and dip them in oil. And then light them ablaze so that they would be the lamps and torches for his gardens or out on the street. Nero hated Christians. And yet, here's Peter saying, honor the emperor. I don't know how much you hate 
Hillary or Donald, I can't envisioning them rounding people up and feeding them to wild animals or setting them ablaze to keep the White House warm. And yet, here's Peter saying, honor him. This would be the group that just a few years from this would crucify Peter. And he refused to be crucified exactly like Jesus. So they crucified him upside down. And yet he says to honor the emperor. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, okay, Aaron, I remember three weeks ago when you, you know, kicked off the series, you showed us that map. And he's writing this letter to people who are in Asia Minor. Well, Asia Minor, if I've got my distances right, it's about 2,000 miles from Rome. And I'd have to say, you know, you're right. And so therefore you're thinking, well, they're 2,000 miles from Rome. They don't have to worry about getting arrested and then fed to the lions and all that other stuff. So they're safe. That's why Peter can say, honor the emperor. Well, if you notice, Peter starts pointing out that there's governors. And these governors are appointed by the emperor. And many of these governors were appointed because they agreed to uphold the same ideals as the emperor. And so if Nero hates the Christians, there's a really good chance that these governors also hate the Christians. Because in the Roman Empire, you were supposed to say, Caesar is Lord. Yet these Christians would go around saying, Jesus is Lord. And you were supposed to, you know, be all about the kingdom of Rome. And yet these Christians talk about the kingdom of God. So there's a really good chance that even these governors would bring persecution against these Jesus followers. And yet Peter even says, you honor them. Give them respect. Submit. He actually goes on as if this isn't bothersome enough. He even says right there in verse 17, the very first phrase, honor everyone. And so if we're talking like government uh, authorities, that means you need to honor your senators, your representatives, your mayor, the military, the police. You need to honor these people. But it also says to honor everyone. So I think that means that you're to honor not just the nice neighbor on your right, but the grumpy old guy on your left. I think it means that you need to go to the family reunion and not only honor your really sweet grandma, but your wacky uncle with those strange conspiracy theories. I think it means when you go to the ball game, you don't just honor the friend that you sit with in the stands. You also somehow find some way to show respect to the crazy mom or dad who's yelling at their kid or yelling at the refs. Honor everyone. Give them respect, even if they haven't earned it. All right, so anyone here as bothered as I am right now? Like, this is not comfortable. And so Peter, I think, senses this and decides, all right, let's just go for the juggernaut. Let's just pile it on. So he continues. He says, not only do you need to give honor to the governmental authorities, you need to give uh, honor to the personal authorities. He says to servants, to slaves, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. <laughs> so it's not enough, apparently, for Peter to say, yeah, honor the, cr the crazy emperor and also find ways to give respect to these corrupt governors. But you also need to find ways to honor even cruel masters. 
Not just the nice ones and the good ones. No, those that when you go and you do the job right, you still get beaten. Honor. Submit. Give respect. This is uncomfortable. This is hard. How in the world? I mean, is he just like basically telling us to become doormats? Is he saying that like, you know, I'm crazy. You know, his meds are off. How in the world can he say this? It's because he lived with Jesus for three years. Listen to what he says. Pick it back up in verse 21, the second half. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter lived with Jesus for three years. He followed him all around. He heard what he taught. He saw Jesus perform all sorts of miracles. And yet, he saw Jesus do the unthinkable. There was a moment where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And they give all sorts of responses. But then Jesus looks at him and says, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who spoke up and said, you are the Messiah, the son of God. And yet Peter saw this Messiah submit to an unjust arrest, go through a fake trial. He he faced all sorts of false accusations. He submitted to these uh, unjust and and cruel uh, soldiers who whipped his back, who were operating like taskmasters underneath the rule of governors who was operating under the rule of an emperor. How in the world could Jesus, the son of God, submit to this? The key is right there in verse 23. It says in the second half of it that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, Jesus wasn't ultimately submitting to the governors, to the Jewish leaders, to all of the soldiers. Ultimately, he was submitting to his father. His trust was in God, the one who judges justly. And so it was by keeping his eyes, keeping his heart, keeping his trust on the Father, that Jesus could go through this suffering, and he could even submit to these sinful human institutions and people. He, in a sense, showed honor and gave respect even to those who did not deserve it. In fact, I see three ways that we see Jesus do this. Three ways. The the first one is I see him honor in his heart. That honor begins in the heart. If you look there in verse 22, the first part of it says that he committed no sin. Uh, Over and over, you'll see in the scriptures that they'll talk about how Jesus lived a sinless life. Sin starts in the heart. Uh, In fact, if you go back to James chapter 1, 
James was the brother of Jesus, and he writes this letter, much like Peter, to a group of Christians living kind of dispersed out. And this letter is supposed to travel around, and he's trying to encourage them. And in verse 14 of his letter, uh, the first chapter, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In other words, James is saying that sin is not just an outward action. Sin begins in the heart. That when you are tempted to something, you can either, okay, you're tempted and you just walk away from it. Or you begin to fantasize. You begin to desire. You begin to play with the temptation. And now you're beginning to sin. Yeah, the outward action, that's sin. But the sin actually began in the heart. And I think when we want to try and do what Peter's encouraging us to do, to show honor, to give respect, to submit, it's got to begin in the heart. That it can't just be this outward action. It's got to begin inside. <laughs> well, I'm going to be honest. When I'm at work and my boss is being just, you know, unfair, just being too demanding, I don't want to submit. I want to kind of rebel. I want to kind of fight against. I want her to see you're being outrageous. And yet, if I have a posture in my heart of love and submission and honor, of respecting the position that she's in, I can actually move with submission. And it comes from the heart. So that's the first thing I see in Jesus, is that honor begins in the heart. The second thing I see him do is that honor comes through your words. You need to honor through your words. The second part of there of verse 22, Peter says that neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gets arrested by these soldiers and they drag him before the Sanhedrin. The, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish court and they were the ones who would do the trials over Jews, determining if people were living according to the law or not. But normally those trials would take place in the middle of the day. So the people could come and hear the testimony. So there was, in a sense, a transparency. But not this one. They did this at night. So this was an illegal trial. And they were trying to find something to accuse Jesus of. And testimony was, you know, conflicting with one another. And they couldn't get something solid. And then finally, they think they've got it. And so they drag him before Pilate. I want to read it to you from Mark chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So the pilot was amazed. You see, normally when you have someone say something against you, like when you're sitting in a conference room and someone says something disrespectful, your first temptation is to want to defend yourself. You, you, you might even begin to lie or, or change the truth just a little bit to make you look a little better because you're trying to earn their respect. And yet here's Jesus standing up. These accusations being thrown at him are absolutely off basis. And he says nothing. He submits. He shows honor. And Pilate just kind of looks at him like, you're not going to respond? I mean, Pilate's seen many criminals. He's heard every story. 
Jesus is not acting like everyone else. There's something different about him. And it causes Pilate to be amazed. Jesus showed honor through his words by not even speaking. That tells me that when you're in a meeting with your colleagues, and maybe they're not exactly saying the nicest things about you, you do not have to raise your voice. You do not have to get angry. You do not have to verbally destroy them. You don't have to lie and concoct some other story to make you look better because God's in control. You can put your trust in the one who judges justly. And so you can speak calmly and say what needs to be said without losing it because God's got this. So honor begins in the heart, but it also has to come through your words. And then lastly, we see that honor comes through Jesus's actions. He honors through his actions. This is verse uh, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. I, I don't know about you, but when someone says something hurtful or, or does something, you want revenge. Those of you who uh, have been getting our weekly email on Thursdays, we just looked at this in Romans 12, of, of how we naturally want to get revenge on people. And yet, Paul, writing to this church in Rome, he's like, don't do it. Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. He's got this. You can trust him. That's why you, when you're reviled, you don't have to respond the same. Jesus is our example. So we see Jesus. He, the honor begins in his heart. He honors through his words, and he also honors through his actions. And Peter says there that he is a, this example for us. But it's more than him just being an example. Jesus enables us to do what he did, to honor like he did, because he freed us. And that's what he says in verse 24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If you follow Jesus, that means your story is that you were dead in your sin, but that through Jesus, you can now be alive spiritually. And so, you're no longer a slave to sin because you've died to it. You now belong to God. So your identity has completely changed. That means you can trust God. Because if this God who loved you enough could come to earth to die in your place so that your sin would be paid for and you could now be alive spiritually, then even the difficult thing you're going through where someone is not giving you respect, they're not acting respectable, you can still trust God through it. That is what enables you to do this. You don't just look at Jesus as an example. He died for you so you could actually do it. But then something happens. When you actually do this, as difficult as it is to give respect to people who are not acting respectable, two things happen. The first is that sometimes you actually get respect. Look back at verse 15 with me. Peter writes, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Do you remember when Jesus was standing there before Pilate? And the chief priests are throwing all these accusations against him. And Jesus doesn't respond. And it's like Pilate is amazed and actually begins to give respect to Jesus. In Pilate's eyes, Jesus was just some carpenter from Nazareth, just a Jew creating problems and issues. He'd heard about him. He was healing people. He's probably curious. But hey, Pilate's a Roman. 
He's going to destroy these Jews. He's going to put them under. And yet he sees a strength in Jesus that makes him marvel. And I think Pilate actually begins to give him some respect. When Jesus, by honoring Pilate, respects the office that he's in, he ends up getting respect. And sometimes, if you will do the same thing, maybe it's a teacher or a professor, you just really don't like, and they can sense it. You decide, I'm going to still give respect because that's my professor. It might change the relationship and they will actually begin to give you respect. When you've got a boss who just no one likes and yet you somehow, not brown nosing and kissing up, but you just honor them in such a way, it might just change the relationship and they will actually begin to respect you even though they still continue to do things that aren't respectable. So give respect And sometimes, just sometimes, you will actually get respect in return. But there's something even more important here. That when you give respect, you actually bring joy to God. And that's what he says down in, uh, what is it, verse uh, 20, the second half of it. Peter writes, But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. At Riverwood, we talk so much about what God wants to do. We believe that what this world needs is people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. That means he's wanting to take his image that was in you, that got destroyed and marred by sin. He's wanting to reshape that and remold it and restore that image through the gospel. He wants you to be like Jesus. And so if Jesus could suffer through the injustices, then you can too. He will enable you. He will empower you. He will be with you. He will not abandon you. You can suffer. And when you do, when you will give respect, when you will submit to these people, you bring glory to God and some joy to his heart. And that alone should be enough for us to do it. Not just to get respect from others, not to show how tough we are spiritually, but because our God has called us to this and it somehow, strangely enough, gives glory and honor to him because we're being like Christ. Because guess what? When we suffer through it, when we submit to these people, we actually are showing that we're being more like Christ than we ever realized we were. So let me encourage you. Don't just make people earn your respect. Do the unthinkable. Give it. Give them respect. Show them honor. Find ways to properly submit because ultimately this is about your submission to God. So let it start in your heart. Let it come through your words. Let it be seen in your actions. And as you do it, you might just discover people will begin to view you differently and your relationships will change. And that will be because you loved them like Jesus loved and you lived among them like Jesus lived among them. So, Father, I pray that you would enable us and empower us to do this. To show honor like Jesus did is so hard and difficult because everything in us cries out wanting respect and we don't want to be mistreated. And yet you're calling us to place our faith in you. And so, Lord, I pray right now for anyone that is facing a difficulty in their workplace. Uh, Maybe there's a, a relationship going on. Maybe there's something going on with the law. And they are struggling right now to show honor and respect Because these people aren't acting respectable. Would you help us fully to trust you? God, there's so many gray areas in this. I realize that. And we need your wisdom to help us to navigate through that. But ultimately, you want us to trust you. 
So Father, empower us to do that. Pray for anyone here today that has never placed their faith fully in Jesus. They're trying to just do this life and be a good person. And yet, what Peter says to do, God, it's nearly impossible in our own strength. And what they need is Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that right now, if you're speaking to them and you're moving in their heart, that right now they would be saying, God, I need you. I want you. I've been trying to do this life on my own, and I can't. And yet, it says right here that you bore our sin through the cross on that tree so that we would, be, that we would die to sin so that we could live for righteousness. And right now, Father, they're crying out for that righteousness. They want you. They need you. So God, I ask that you would give that to them. That they would sense your forgiveness of their sins. That no matter what they've done, there's nothing you can't forgive. The cross is that powerful. And you invite them into a Jesus-centered life. And to climb this hill towards Christ-likeness. And that when they get to the top, the view would be amazing. Because you have molded us to become more and more like Jesus. And we would love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And Father, for anyone here that, that proclaims your name, that maybe they just haven't been trusting you. They've been speaking ill of presidential candidates. They've been saying negative things about their bosses or coworkers. They've not been living in a sense of honor. And yet, as they've been hearing this message, they're feeling conviction. I pray, Father, that you would change them, that they would take on a culture of honor, that they would find ways to show respect because their faith is fully centered in you. So, Father, I just pray that they would sense your forgiveness. They sense your call to follow them. And that know that because they've got you, they've got everything they need, and they don't have to worry if they have anyone's respect. So, Father, would you just do this deep work in us so that you can do a great work through us? Would you do this, Father, for your glory and for our joy? Would you mold us and shape us more and more into the image of Jesus? And this we pray. Amen.